Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Community Church in Springfield, Missouri. Christ Community features life-giving, verse-by-verse teaching from the Bible. If you would like more information about CCC, you can visit our website at cccspringfield.org. We trust these messages will challenge and encourage you in being a faithful follower of Christ. Paul, a servant of Christ. By the way, this is Romans. We're starting Romans. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for the five that we're looking forward to that. All right. And uh, we hope for the next four years you enjoy it. All right. (laughs) Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to those, all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we bow our heads in submission to you. We want our hearts to be in a similar position that when we hear your truth, we abide. We thank you for your word. As we embark upon this study of Romans, we pray not for just knowledge, but for transformation. That we would have a greater sense of who you are, of your grace, of the depth of our sin and the need of a Savior. We look forward to this study, and our hearts are bursting forth to consider these truths. I thank you for these, my brothers and sisters, who eagerly receive your word, and may there be tremendous fruit to come as a result. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name, and all God's people said, you may be seated. Augustine, Martin Luther, John Wesley, these are men that all came to faith after reading the book of Romans. Luther said, it is the chief part of the New Testament and the perfect gospel, the absolute epitome of the gospel. Samuel Coleridge English poet and literary critic, said, Paul's letter to the Romans is the most profound work in existence. F.F. Bruce wrote, Time and again in the course of Christian history, it has liberated the minds of men, brought them back to an understanding of the essential gospel of Christ, and started spiritual revolutions. We could say the Romans is the fullest, plainest, and grandest statement of the gospel in the New Testament. The message is not, as Rousseau the philosopher said, man is born free and everywhere he's in chains, but rather man is born in sin. And Jesus Christ came to set us free. All one merely has to do to understand the need For what is in the book of Romans 
is to look around us and to observe what is in our culture. Society has all but divorced itself from divine revelation, and it has little or no concept as the, the view of the true God, who is the true God. Romans speaks of the reality of the need for God for humankind. Uh, modern man's love affair with himself has produced blinding self-centeredness. So that we're now called the first generation or the narcissistic society. Sin is viewed in reality, in color, in Romans. And we see it mirrored in our society with our constant emphasis upon human rights and shelving of personal responsibility. That which is good and true and right has to be discarded in our culture if it interferes with human happiness. But Romans responds with a call of transformation by having our minds renewed to the perfect will of God. When we journeyed through the book of Acts, we read of three missionary trips by the Apostle Paul. On his third trip, while in Corinth, this was the time that Paul wrote the book of Romans. It was around 58 A.D. Nero was ruling in Rome, and Pax Romana prevailed. Pax Romana was the imperialistic rule of about 200 years of relative peace by Rome. When Paul finally made it to Rome, it was at the expense of the Roman government. You might remember that Paul was charged in Jerusalem with, you know, causing a commotion amongst the Jewish leaders while he was in the temple area. And he went from city to city pleading, because he was a Roman citizen, of his, of his innocence. But he was tried before Caesar concerning the charges brought against him by the chief priests and the Jewish leaders. And we read about this in Acts 25. So he eventually got to Rome, but before that, he wrote the book of Romans from Corinth. While he was imprisoned in Rome, he wrote Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. Paul wrote to the Romans, anticipating a future visit. In the book, the church received a complete and comprehensive proclamation of Christian truth. And it was to have a calming and unifying effect upon Jewish and Gentile believers in Rome. The book was to establish believers in the faith. Paul wanted them to be well instructed and have a reasoned faith that was also fully dependent upon the supernatural work of God. His letter is really like a, a syllabus of apostolic teaching, and it provides a master presentation of God's plan of salvation. Paul provided a definition of the people of God in the midst of this melting pot of diverse Jewish and Gentile believers in a dense metropolitan area called Rome. No longer were people, believers, identified according to descent 
circumcised or not, or their culture, but according to their faith in Jesus, so that all believers are now true children of Abraham, regardless of ethnic origin or religious practice. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, either in fact of their sin and guilt or in Christ's offering and the gift of salvation. So there was equality of Jewish and Gentile believers. And this was a premier theme within the book of Romans. Romans quotes the Old Testament 57 times, more than any other book in the New Testament. It quotes the Old Testament. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. These seven verses are one sentence in the Greek. Before Paul wrote the book of Romans, he had been dramatically converted from killing and persecuting believers. Then he had 20 years of experience in proclaiming the gospel and being an apostle. And he introduces himself to the church in Rome and think of all the ways that he could have introduced himself. He could have said, I'm Paul the scholar because he had been schooled by the renowned Jewish master Gamaliel. He could have referred to himself as a Roman citizen, a title of significant influence there in the capital city. He could have called attention to his personal encounter with the risen Christ as spoken about in Acts 22. Or he could have recounted his firsthand experience of the splendor of heaven in 2 Corinthians 12. Instead, he calls himself something that one man called the highest title than any monarch upon the earth. And what was that? A servant, a slave to the Creator. Jesus Christ. Paul uses this term slave, and the vast majority of the population in Rome, in fact, were slaves or of slave origin. When connected to the King of Kings, well, that's a glorious term. Uh, he could say, well, I'm the, I'm the lowest of the galley slaves, but I'm serving the Alpha and Omega. And is that not the same for us? Ultimately, all of us are servants of the king. No matter if you're a pastor or a teacher, a clerk, an office worker, or CEO, we are to be servants of the Most High God. And we often get that wrong, right? We grab onto position, title. Great men in the Old Testament saw it the same way. Abraham, Moses, Joshua, David, Elijah. They all called themselves God's slaves. I mean, think about it. Often in our talk about relationships, we often hear the, the term, you know, control issues, right? I mean, if, if you have control issues, maybe we need to kind of cut through the fluff and realize, could that be just kicking against the goads? and being called as a servant? 
On January 15, 2009, U.S. Airways Flight 1549 departed New York's LaGuardia Airport, and within a few minutes, the plane collided with a flock of geese taking out both engines. I would like a flock of geese, geese taken out of our neighborhood that leaves things in our yard and driveway, but I digress. Captain Sully Sullenberg made an emergency landing in the chilly waters of the Hudson River, and before he left the plane and got to safety, you know the story, he walked the plane, not once but twice, to make sure that there was nobody left on board. He was the last one to leave the plane. That's what a captain does. And he became a national hero. Three years later, almost to the date, January 13, 2012, a massive Italian cruise ship called the Costa Concordia crashed into the rocks and started to sink. An investigation would determine the cause of the crash. The ship's cast, uh, captain, Francesco Chattino, was trying to impress a young female dancer on board, and he veered too close to danger. The ship started sinking with its 4,000-plus passengers on board, and in the confusion and chaos, Chatino escaped on a lifeboat before everyone else made it off the ship. Coast Guard member finding this out angrily told him on the phone, get back on board, and then a few other choice words. Chatino later claimed that he fell into a lifeboat because the ship was listing to one side. I just happened to fall into a lifeboat. Yeah, okay. Would you like to see that again? Happened to fall into The court didn't believe his story. Instead, he was found guilty of manslaughter, causing a shipwreck, abandoning the ship with passengers on board, and he was sentenced to 10 years in prison. Serving oneself or serving others, it's going to probably be evident in time. Notice Paul's apostleship is not a self-appointed position, but it says he was called by God. This was a part of Paul's enduring service. It's probably the same for us. We may not be called to apostleship, but we're called as a child of God, a, a saint loved by God. helped him endure. Now remember Paul, slandered, beaten, falsely accused, stoned, left for dead, but God had summoned him. Now remember he had Roman citizenship, Greek culture, Jewish training, but God had called him from the womb, to accomplish a gospel mandate. It took him a few decades to find that out. Now, a Pharisee was set apart to the law, but Paul was set apart for the gospel. So how would Paul answer the question, who am I? How would you answer that question? Paul would say, I'm Paul, a slave of Christ, 
called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. That is who I am. How would you answer it? Some might say, well, I'm a sexual creature with the right to fulfillment. Some would say, I'm king of the hill and trying to prove that fact to everybody else. Or some might say on the other end, I'm a nobody. I don't have any meaning or purpose. But Paul knew how to answer that question. I'd suggest we better know how to answer that question because it defined his purpose and it helps to define ours. Because when you have purpose and you have direction, you know where you're going. During World War II, Churchill cabled Roosevelt, give us the tools and we'll finish the job. God had cabled Paul and said, I've given you the tools by my grace. Now finish the job, proclaiming the gospel and your apostleship. Newest calling. We read about the origin of the gospel, which was God. Religious leaders didn't dream of this. God took the foolish things of the world and fulfilled a promise that was in place in the first book that's in your Bible, the book of Genesis. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his head. God gives a promise not only of hope, but of continual warfare. The Hebrew language in the wider context are referring to something greater than mankind's loathing of snakes, but refers to a battle that reached far beyond the Garden of Eden. He shall bruise your head indicates that there's going to be a male member of the human race that will deliver to the serpent or the evil one a fatal blow. That's a nod to the coming Messiah. Remember, God is speaking to the serpent here. And he says, and the evil one will cause this Messiah to suffer. That's what he means by bruising his heel. Old Testament and first century saints were familiar with the coming Messiah because of all of the promises within the Old Testament. Perhaps the most famous one in Isaiah 53, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought, about, brought us peace And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And Paul longed to announce that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures in 1 Corinthians 15. And those scriptures are obviously the Old Testament. That's what they had in their hand in the first century. 
so much of the Messiah was talked about in the Old Testament. A sampling. Who would Jesus' mother be? A virgin. Of what house was he to be from? It said the house of David. Where would he be born? Bethlehem. What name would be given him? Emmanuel. What would his death be like? A cross, piercing the body without breaking his bones. Where? At Jerusalem, outside the city. You see, the gospel was rooted as far back in Genesis and confirmed by the prophets and the Holy Scriptures. We read about the gospel in verse 3 concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The gospel concerns God's son. He is the substance of the gospel. The gospel is not Christ plus something, plus this or that work or Christ plus this church or that church that I've got to be a part of, or some denomination, or even Christ plus baptism. The person and work of Christ defines the gospel. And the second we add anything to it, we dilute it. Now because... The Roman believers did not know Paul personally. It was important for him to present an unblemished record of truth, to demonstrate a kind of theological kinship with his audience from the outset. And no issue divided true believers from apostates or non-believers more than the identity of Christ. If you were to look at false teachings today, there are basically three main factors that know that you are dealing with unholy ground. First, there is a misunderstanding or falsehood regarding the identity of Christ, like I already said. Or there is an addition to salvation other than faith alone in Christ. Or there is a diluting of the truth of scriptures or adding other revelation to the Scripture, equal to Scripture, such as visions or even traditions. Now, there are other things considered false, but those three, I think, are kind of the, the premier ways of recognizing a clear marker to falsehoods. Now, knowing that Christ is the centerpiece of the gospel helps us to define not just the gospel, but what unites us. What unites us. It's not political party. It's not how we dress. It's not how we school. It's not having a, a label like Methodist or 
Presbyterian or AG or, or Baptist or even evangelical, which means very little in the final analysis, any of those labels. Add to that arguments about tongues or eschatology or a host of other Christian talking points, and you can understand why many are turned off by the church. But Paul had a clear understanding of Jesus as the central figure of the gospel and what unites us as a people. You see, when there are differences with me and another person from our body, I remember we might differ about this or that, but we're united on the gospel. So there's still unity, even though there can be disagreement. There, there can be diversity, but still we're unified. Not uniformity because we don't agree on everything. We don't look alike. We didn't come from the same spot. We're all different. Okay? That's unity in the midst of the diversity. It's because there is a clear understanding. That doesn't mean we're simple people, but unity is simple to understand but hard to practice. Paul highlights the Son of God, said he was descended from David according to the flesh. That demonstrates his human lineage. This tells us he was 100% human man. Had a physical birth, he ate, he slept, he was tired, he laughed, he worked in his physical body. And his humanity was necessary to be representatives of us upon the cross. And the Bible says he was tempted like we are. We read in Hebrews, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He was a man. But he wasn't just a man. He was also God. Paul says, declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now the resurrection was certainly a wonderful sign that Jesus was indeed God. And it, it was kind of a, a premier sign along with many other miracles and statements made about Jesus. It was declared and prophesied in Scripture that he would be God's only son, demonstrated by his resurrection. The phrase spirit of holiness refers to his divine nature confirmed by the resurrection. We could say it this way, that man has done his foul worst in leading Christ into death via a cross and a tomb. But God has intervened in the power of the Spirit. Man's worst killed a Savior. God's best is a risen Christ. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Christ Jesus. Grace was the motivation of the gospel, and it's the same with Paul's 
apostleship. And Paul's view of his apostleship and ministry was to be an overflow of God's mysterious grace with him. We cannot fully comprehend God's love and grace. I've had some come up to me when we've preached through, I can remember this when we preached through Galatians and saying, you know, I'm, I'm sick of hearing about grace. That's not a good thing to say. God bless them. But if I think I've got a handle on grace from God, I'm not in a very good spot. You know, you may not know this, but I have sinned a lot. I'm older than most of you. I got a long record. Knowing things I know about myself, inside and out, okay? My whole family reminds me of these things, by the way, okay? I'm amazed that God still gives me his grace. I'm amazed we still have a church. That's grace. You, you, you might think this is faux humility. It's, it's really not. It's just a realization that I sin, and God still loves me. I can never quite get a handle on that. I accept it, and I believe it, but understand it fully? Eh? I mean, I, I try to give that kind of grace to others, but you and I both know, in the human flesh, even with those you love the most, sometimes it's really hard. And sometimes you fail, right? But God... Continues to love me, calls me his own, doesn't renege on that. I can't quite get over that. So I'm amazed. And it is kind of mysterious, but I accept it and believe it. The gospel also was not given to us so that we can entertain other Christians or so we can maintain finely tuned theological positions to show our superiority to other religious groups. No, it says a purpose of the gospel, catch this now, is to be obedient to God. Hmm. Now let's be clear about this. Faith is required to receive the gospel. Afterwards, obedience is expected. Right? Okay? Uh, there's a way to kind of view this that I think kind of clarifies it. In Mark 16, 16, uh, it says we're to believe and be baptized. Okay? Well, and, and baptism, I would, baptism, I say, is a part of obedience. Well, belief is required for salvation, and baptism is expected as a new believer. In fact, the next part of the verse says that those who are condemned are those who don't believe. It doesn't say anything about baptism there. And that's because baptism is expected. It's not required. We wouldn't hold, and we shouldn't hold, the gospel in obedience against each other 
but rather that faith in the gospel is a condition necessary for obedience to occur. Right? Faith is required. Obedience is expected. And we see many declarations within the New Testament talking about the importance of obedience. But listen, I can't be obedient enough for God to love me. God already loves me in my disobedience and sin. That's where the faith comes, right? But once I come to Christ, he obviously wants me to be obedient. In fact, it can get so bad for some Christians. We talk about, you know, test yourselves to see if you're of the faith, Paul wrote elsewhere. Because the track record is so bad, you have a right to say, you know, tell me about this conversion experience because I'm having a hard time understanding it right now. Right? What difference does it really make for you? But again, the gospel is faith alone. That's how we come to Christ. Okay? Then obedience is expected. All right. Paul ended the book with the same truth. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that has kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. That's part of me being a servant to God is living in obedience. The glory for the gospel going to the nations and for all that God had done through the Romans, Paul says that gives glory to Christ and his work. For through him, from him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever, he says in Romans 11. In Revelation 7, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving with honor and power might be to our God forever and ever, Revelation 7. Worthy are you, our, God, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created in Revelation 4. So God is interested that our lives be a reflection of his work, and that gives him glory, that I can praise him. And look, I look at you, and you are a reflection of his glory because I know many of your stories. And I've seen God work in you. And what a, what a tremendous testimony it's been, whether it's difficulty in marriage or you, you got the doctor to say, hey, um, the tests are positive. You've got cancer. And I've seen the way that you've responded. Tough, yes but it gave God glory because you continued to walk as a servant of Christ and being obedient. God bless you for that. that. That is so encouraging. And in fact, I would say this, the more we know each other, the more we're transparent and vulnerable to each other, the more we realize the, the pains that we go through, and then we see Christ enter in on that, the more our fellowship deepens and the more we can encourage each other. That's why our our fellowship is so important that we share our lives together. 
And I know in evangelicalism, they've gotten it wrong a lot because it's all about dressing up, playing a part, putting on a plastic smile, make sure you say Jesus in every paragraph and make them know you're, you're okay. Say you're okay no matter what's going on. That is not fellowship. That's fake. But fellowship is, yes, I'm struggling, but here's God. I'm in the valley of death, but here's God. And I know he's there. It hurts, but here's God. And that is where our bonds are strengthened. Verse 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What a great place to stand for believers. We are loved by God. And this is the beginning of all activity with God, being loved by him. It's not because we initiated it, but it's because God did. We love him because what? He first loved us, right? And it says we're called saints, okay? We're not called because we have achieved sainthood, but we are saints now because God called us to be one of his own, set apart. It's like, that's our new identity in Jesus. He said, now, wait a minute, you don't know what I did. No, no, well, listen, there's hardly anything you could tell me that I could be surprised, first of all, all right? I mean, seriously. I had somebody say to me recently, huh? I'm so embarrassed that I tell you this. I'm like, really? I mean, I've heard, trust me, far worse. Not that I'm saying it's okay, but I'm just saying we all sin, right? But God calls us saints, right? We are saints who occasionally sin. We're not sinners trying to be saints. It's a big difference. And then when we understand this, that God loves us, that we're saints, we're to experience grace and peace or the shalom of God. Now, many claim the name of Christ, but it seems peace has eluded them. Their problems in life are really not extraordinary compared to other people. Now, I'm not dismissing the pain, whether it's physical or, or, or emotional or both. But listen, there are many people who've experienced worse than you have, and they have peace. And then there are those who experience stuff, and they don't have peace. I've talked to people who are near suicide or who have committed suicide because they couldn't understand how peace could be found in the midst of the travail. They see peace as the absence of turmoil. And it doesn't mean that. It means God can meet me in the midst of the turmoil. I've given this story in the past, but it bears repeating here. Um, our youngest are twins. And when Janet was pregnant with the twins, we uh, had an ultrasound and found out that one was in trouble, um, had some heart issues. And so uh, we had to go to St. Louis, have an extra ultrasound, and the, the doctor told us there, eh, it didn't look great. Um, and, you know, there are, here are some options, and we just weren't sure what would be the outcome. 
So the drive from Barnes Hospital basically to Rolla was nothing but weeping. Okay? And then at about Rolla, I'm like, okay, I'm done. Enough. You know, this is the real empathetic part of me. Okay. Um, We both cried. But I'm like, we can't keep doing this. Yes, it hurts. But is God in control? Can we believe that God is sovereign even if our baby doesn't make it? And we had to say, yes. Okay, if that's true, then we will continue to serve God, honor God, whether we lose this baby or not. Or whether the baby, and I actually remember saying, I don't care if the baby has three heads. We're going to love the baby. Okay? And he only had two, so that was good. All right? Um, (laughs) We both agreed. There's grieving. There's hurt. But there can also be a peace. And once we kind of decided that, God rushed in. And I don't, I don't remember ever having a weeping like that over that situation. And even though there were multiple surgeries, heart surgery, a lot of money, you know, over a, a month in ICU, but there was peace because we knew that God was there with us in that valley. I'm just saying that it's not the absence of travail. It's that he's there with you. He still loves you. And I think what Paul was trying to set these Romans up in is to take all their issues and plant them at the feet of Christ. Because it's his person and his work in us and our identity in him that is the basis of our peace. And Paul found a way of doing that, obviously, right? I mean, here was a guy who had all these things go wrong with him. And remember the one scene, they're in prison and he's singing? How amazing is that? I read a story recently of Dietrich Bonhoeffer you might know, was, was executed because he was against Hitler, a German pastor. And while he was in a cell, there was a pastor next to him. They were separated by a concrete wall. And he could hear the other pastor bemoaning, complaining, uh, actually denying that God was in control as a pastor. And, you know, his faith had just hit, um, hit the bottom. And Bonhoeffer says, pray with me. It says, put your hand up on the concrete wall. It'll be like we're touching each other. And the man first refused to do it. Finally, he did it. Bonhoeffer prays for him the most beautiful prayer. And that pastor was shortly after executed. But a German guard came to Bonhoeffer and told him, you wouldn't have believed him. He was a different guy. God gave him peace even though he knew he was facing his end. That is what God will do and can do, even in the worst of circumstances. 
We stop. We admit our frailty. We acknowledge our need of him. And we sang it today. Holy Spirit, come. Fill my heart. Give me that peace. We get frazzled about. We have to stop. Welcome his presence. Oh, I believe he's there. And I believe he wants to provide that for us. It's a wonderful thing. You know, sometimes all of life's stuff that we go through, it has a way, and I, I think it did with the Apostle Paul, it strips us of everything we once thought important. And we see that Christ is our all. May it be so with us. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the Christ Community Church Podcast. 